Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. The power of our largest corporations is all around. Facebook tracks our data, while big coal pollutes our atmosphere. And in turn, those big companies have many smaller companies that make their world go round. Accountants, insurance companies, banks, lawyers. It's a massive web of power. But what happens if a corporate foot soldier decides enough? And then what if she doesn't just chuck in the salary, but she decides to use her inside knowledge to better understand how big business reproduces its power so people like you and me might be able to level the playing field? Today's Changemaker Chat is with Michelle Ma. She's a corporate lawyer and now a whistleblower on that system. She is spilling the beans on the myths holding up the system that we have, and she's identified a bunch of strategies that we can use to make it better. In this chat, she tells us of her dramatic transition, and she runs us through her myth-busting lessons and strategies about power that are explored in her new book, Competition is Killing Us. So, what are you waiting for? Let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemaker Chats, conversations with people changing the world. Changemakers also produces episodes that are feature stories about social change campaigns. Changemakers is supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy dash lab. And you can sign up to our email list at changemakerspodcast.org. So, Michelle, welcome to Changemaker Chats. Thank you so much, Amanda. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, no, the pleasure is ours. I've read your cool book and have a sense of your story. I think this is going to be one that lots of people are going to want to listen to. So to start, I was wondering, you know, you have an interesting story. I'm intrigued to, to know, we always ask our, our guests how they describe the, the change-making they do in the world, the kind of change they do. What kind of change-maker are you, Michelle? I would say that I am an unwitting change maker. Um, <laughs> I definitely did not set out to change anything. I actually thought that I'd be able to do plenty of good within the system as it was. And that is how I developed my career. And it was really, and I think we'll get into this in a little bit, but it was really through kind of 
repeated frustrations with this with the way the system kind of is operating and my role within that system and really feeling kind of co-opted by that system to be performing in a certain way that led me to change and um, I suppose to, to led me to this path of of actually becoming a change maker in our in our call that we had be- before this uh, recording this podcast uh, you used the word uh, whistleblower which is a word that I had never applied to myself before but I, th- I think it's interesting to think about you know the role of people kind of within systems who understand systems um, deeply and what yeah happens to them <laughs> when they try and um, change that system, which I, I suppose is what I'm doing. But I'm I'm still kind of trying to currently use the the rules and the the way that the system works to change it. So that's creating its own um, frustrations, which we which we can talk about. But yeah, I would say overall, it, it was not my goal at all. I'm not. I don't have a history and and path past, sorry, in um, movement building or in ch- on change making. And um, this is something that I've come to really by understanding that my expertise and knowledge of the system is required to change that system. So therefore, it, it falls to me to do it. Yeah. And look, what I like about your story is that it's sort of evidence of the fact that acting on our values, making the world a better place, striving for, for to do that and reflecting on how well we're going can take a, take us in new and unpredictable paths. And for you, someone who's a, who was too trained as a corporate lawyer was highly successful in that space. You too have found a, a new path in trying to, trying to actually bring to life some of the values that you've held dear for a long time, but also change the way you are in the world too at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so, so Michelle, like, this is the time that we get to hear the story. You're uh, you, in once in one part of your life, you're an amazing corporate lawyer, and then you shift to basically, actually, you know, you use your skills to to question the the career that you had, the 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 life that you had. Tell us the you know, tell us the medium long story about how you went on this path, start as early as you, as you would like to sort of explain how you got to step one and then how you found yourself walking away from that to step two. It, it might seem quite far back, but if we start kind of in my teenage years, I was this kind of uh, teenage conservative. I genuinely kind of, you know, I supported Margaret Thatcher. Um, she was actually the MP for the constituency of where I ended up growing up. She wasn't, she wasn't there at the time, but I kind of had this connection and I, I felt like I felt like a lot of my friends you know who were very kind of liberal and labor leaning I felt like I understood the economics of the world better than them and I, I somehow had this insight and that was really facilitated by going to study economics at Oxford and feeling like I was being given this kind of privileged worldview that through which I could understand that actually, although free markets had this bad rap, they were truly the answer. And that the problem was really that we weren't allowing markets to be free enough. So all of the things that we saw as some of the challenges with free markets were really because we hadn't kind of fully committed to this program of reforming markets. And, you know, you think of this as like, late 90s, early noughties, and I'm going into university, we're only just beginning to see the cracks of the system because really most of these systems are only just being developed. Some of you know the World Trade Organization, a lot of the free trade movement, liberalizing the world, in, imposing free markets on, um, on the developing world, et cetera. A lot of that was only just kind of really starting to be bettered down. And 
you know, I would read books like Atlas Shrugged, um, the book by Ayn Rand. And I would think, mm. right, this is a story of entrepreneurship and the the vision that, that certain people have and are kind of empowered with to to remake the world in a way that's more efficient. And then if it's more efficient, which we need to be with our you know scarce resource of, resources on the world and um, planet, then, then surely free markets is the best way to do it. So I was fully bought into this myth. And when I was choosing my career path, I knew that I liked the economics and I liked law as well, which is what I went on to study. And so I combined them together into this field of, of um, law called competition law, where you're kind of looking at how to maintain the free market. And so I really felt like I was, um, although I was walking, working as a corporate lawyer and helping companies get their mergers approved, I genuinely believed it was part of the system that you know everybody deserves a right to defense. But ultimately, the whole system is working towards competitive markets. So that's good. So it doesn't really matter. I, I worked on the regulator side as well, also investigating companies. I worked at, um, for a little while at the World Bank, uh, looking at global competition policy and, and helping developing countries develop their competition policy, all with this idea that that was all working towards a good end. So I was quite idealistic, I suppose, but I found peace with it because I, I, I thought that I was happily working within, within the system for good. And a few things happen to really shake that belief. I mean, I suppose, firstly, just the the wheels kind of coming off the car. You, you know, started to look around you, late noughties, coming into 2010 and onwards. You've got the financial crisis. You've got the growing understanding around climate change and the damage that we have masochistically done to, to our planet. And so some of that thinking around free markets started to you know, have a question mark in my mind. The one incident that really kind of shook me that I describe in the book is the collapse of the Rana Plaza garment factory in, in Dhaka, Bangladesh. My parents are, are from Dhaka and there was something about seeing people who looked like myself climbing out of the rubble and understanding that they were part of this extremely efficient supply chain, that that is what the thin end of the wedge looks like of, of free markets. And often, often we kind of don't see it because it's so far away. But actually, kind of thinking about it more deeply, I started to come to understand that actually, that was just the kind of bare face of it. The same dynamic is at play everywhere. It's just that I might not be able to see the exploitation of, of people that you know that or of systems and resources that happens um, already you know in the UK. Here it was you know a, a thousand thousands of miles away, but it connected with me because I, I suppose because of my family heritage. So that was one incident, and then you know I worked on a, a million mergers and different industries that probably should have raised more questions for me than they did, which I think is says something a little bit about how. We often insulate ourselves from our conscience, particularly when we've kind of decided that what we're doing is is right. Um, we might not see the day-to-day -day evidence that, that would uh, argue against that. But I was working on one deal. It was a fizzy drinks merger, of all things. And there was something that kind of bothered me about the fact that all that we were arguing for as the lawyers for this for these companies was we were saying to the authorities, don't worry, the prices of these fizzy drinks will stay as low as ever, if not lower. And that cheapness was the only thing that the system was actually protecting. And 
if you strip away all of that rhetoric around free markets and efficient markets and whatever, and all you end up with is cheap, fizzy drinks, completely ignoring all of the other health implications, resource implications, et cetera, that's not a system worth <laughs> worth defending. And that's kind of the position I, I got to where I, I started to understand, you know, and I should have really seen it when I was working for mining companies and oil and gas companies or whatever. But for some reason, it was the fizzy drinks that, that got me. And I suppose it was one of the reasons why it's so hard to have those realizations actually is because so much of my identity was tied up in this path. I was, I adopted, you know, free markets from such a young age as the thing that was going to define me. And I'd even gone into, you know, a career on that basis. And it's extremely difficult once you've spent, you know, all this time and energy educating yourself, getting qualifications, developing your expertise, publishing papers, developing a name for yourself in a particular field. It's extremely hard to then turn, you know, 180 and turn against that whole model. So that was the kind of painful journey that I, I then um, undertook about five years ago to kind of extract myself from from the system in order to then turn around and, and take an honest look at it. If you don't mind, tell us a little bit about that journey because it's one, it's, you know, I feel like it's one thing for people to make a decision to shun something, to get a different, a kind of slightly different job. This was much more than that for you. This was about changing how you saw the world and who you were in the world. What were some of the key moments as you became aware of that some of what you had believed wasn't what you thought it was and how you then changed in terms of reactions? Like, where did you work? Like, how did you, how did it affect your friendships, other relationships? How did that change you? Well, initially I thought, okay, well, there's no good to be done working as a competition lawyer. So I'm just going to abandon competition law, law, the whole thing. I spent a little while, I think it was about a year. I took an illustration course. I thought, okay, maybe I'll you know go and be something creative. I wrote a sci-fi novel, which is will never be published. A sci-fi <laughs> novel. That's so good. So you'd read Atlas Shrugged yeah. and then you just like, wrote your own. Ner- oh, love it. Yeah. I mean, it was truly awful. Um, but uh, Well, it's a bit like Atlas Shrugged, right? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Not really kidding um, at all, actually. But uh, yeah, so I kind of thought, okay, I'm going to just have a complete career change. I'm just going to, in fact, actually, like many people who have a career change, I thought that I would help other people have careers changes. So I started a, <laughs> I started a um, like website where people could share videos about their different careers. I had this idea that the reason I had gone down this path was because I had so few career options presented to me. Um, you know, when you're at somewhere at university and then, you know, all these people, management consultants and economics consultancies and advertising companies, like those are the only people who turn up to any of your careers fairs mm. and law firms, of course. And so I thought, okay, what if we give people more options? Then they won't kind of find themselves inevitably ending up in this, in this Place. They need more competition, more competition, <laughs> Michelle. <laughs> exactly. And I think that it, it took a while for me to realize that it actually wasn't the career choice that was the problem, that it was the substance of, of the career that I, and, and my kind of the path that I had ended up following within that. Because bear in mind, I had also, you know, I hadn't just worked on the corporate side. I had also worked on the government regulator side. So I had at that point come to believe that the whole system didn't work. 
um, it wasn't just that I started to see the problems with big business. I also started to see the problems with how we were regulating big business. So I was kind of thoroughly fed up with the whole, with the whole thing. Mm. And I had this kind of niggling feeling that I wasn't quite done with thinking about you know, my role in actually changing that. Like maybe there, I had a, a very early sense that maybe I had something to say about it, but I, I didn't know what I had to say. And so I was off doing all of these things, kind of very random things I wasn't, to be honest, very good at. And I'm not a person who's good at doing things that I'm not good at. Like I was not enjoying <laughs> failing at things. And I had a conversation with a friend of mine, a very close friend who uh, knows me very well. And she said, you are not doing any of the things that you actually want to do. And I know that you will only find success when you actually do what, not what you think everybody else thinks you should do, but, but what you should really be doing in your heart. And I asked her like, okay, what's that? Like, I want you to tell me what that is. I need the answer now, fairy godmother. (laughs) Um, And she said, I don't know what it is, but I know that you're not doing it. And that I know that you do actually know what you want to do. You're just not kind of allowing yourself to see it. And I hate being told that I am not doing the right thing or that there's something that, you know, I could, <laughs> I should be doing and I would be doing better. So I literally the next week I thought, okay, I'm just going to stop all the busyness of what I'm doing now, all of these random projects. And I'm just going to do wake up in the morning on Monday morning and just go and do what I want to do. What is it the thing that I love to do? So I went to the British Library, which is our kind of national library in in London, and I got a library card and I just wandered around the shelves and I just kind of, you know, picked up books that interested me. And where that path led was I kind of sat down, started reading about, I was really interested in at that time, automation and the future of work. So I thought, okay, I'll just read about stuff that I'm interested in. And that led me to take a an online course. I think it's just called the future of work by a professor at MIT. It's one of those free online courses. And so I did that. I was kind of spending my week, just not particularly trying to do anything, just doing what I wanted to do in the next moment. So I, d- I did that. And that led me to, you know, at one point in the course, they talked about this trend, which was the, uh, since the 70s, we've had rising productivity levels uh, globally and stagnating wage levels. And this, this gap between productivity and the labor share of what goes to, goes to workers out of GDP. And they started talking about different models for redistributing wealth. And you know, none of this is connected to competition, or I didn't think it was. But so I was just kind of following my interest. And where that led was to the B Corp movement. Um, I started to read about companies that were trying to redistribute wealth and, and do business in a different way. And so I, I don't know if your listeners will be familiar with B Corps. Um, these are kind of certified companies that commit to serving not just shareholders, but workers, the environment and their communities. And I was really interested in this legal point, like changing this model of incorporation for companies into companies that were actually serving good, because this was, this was actually, you know, what I had been attracted to by this whole kind of system of of free markets that actually business and private enterprise could be good and and could serve uh, the public good. So I got very kind of intrigued by that. Maybe I wasn't completely wrong that there was power within the private sector to do good. And so I turned up, I saw that 
B-Lab, the, the B-Lab UK, the kind of local outpost of, of B Corps were having an event and I just turned up at it and I kind of said, you know, I'm not an entrepreneur, I'm not a, a impact investor or anything. I'm just somebody who's interested in this. I'm a lawyer. Do you have any use for me? And nothing happened from that conversation. I had a nice, some nice conversations, but nothing happened. And then months later, I got an email saying, can, actually, can you help us um, put together a package for you know, lobbying the UK government to create a new form of incorporation for companies, um, which is what's happened in the US. And so I, I got involved in that and I wasn't, actually, we weren't successful in the UK, but it got me into this whole world of corporate governance and looking at how companies are actually governed. And eventually, and in between, by the way, I had two two children, and um, oh, just <laughs> kind of, uh, yeah, like still not trying to put myself on any particular path. And when I was at home with my second child, my daughter, in the middle of the night, I'd be you know breastfeeding and and kind of look, looking after her when she woke up, and I started to put these pieces of the puzzle together, understanding that actually. What was so interesting to me about the power of business, if you put it to a, a proper purpose, this idea of of purpose of, of companies was actually the flip side of power. And that really it was the power that, that was what was wrong with my, my understanding of, of competition, that actually this system that only looks at cheap prices for fizzy drinks, the, thing, the piece that was missing from all of that was power. And it was really by going outside of the competition system and being able to to look at the whole system in a completely different way. That was how I was able to then turn turn back on it and survey survey the system and see the things that were actually um, you know, needing to be changed and that piece that was missing, which was power. So in in so many ways, your story about the, the missing piece is about power is, is something that you then take up in the book that you have just recently released, where it, it, which you know, on my reading, it's like a, a treatise in two parts. It's a sort of a diagnostic tool to sort of identify what myths and what problems are existing in the system as it is, and then identification of the solutions. You know, some of the medicine that could be taken to to shift uh, away from the problems that you identify. And in the centre of all this is a conversation about power the conversation about power. Let's get to power in a second. I just want, for those who, 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 who won't have read the book yet, although I do encourage that people should, it's a great, it's a great treatise on um, neoliberal capitalism and, and the lack of accountability that often exists with corporate power. When you're diagnosing the problems in the system as it is now, if you were to summarise the fundamental weakness, you know, what is it? What is going wrong in the system now that, that needs to be corrected, that needs to be better understood? I'd say the fundamental weakness with the way that we have set up capitalism as we, as we operate it now is that we've put various mechanisms within the system, which inevitably mean that power and wealth are concentrated into ever fewer hands, whereas the harms of the system are spread extremely widely. So this efficiency of the system is actually efficiently producing harms and efficiently concentrating power. So we've kind of got the calibration wrong. And I spend you know, most of the first half of the book looking at the myths that are embedded within 
the system of free market capitalism. So the myth that um, free markets are competitive. Actually, we've got lots of evidence that they aren't. The myth that companies serve you know, compete to serve the public good, that they are just kind of out there desperately trying to produce products and services that we all really want um, for ever lower prices, and that that serves us as consumers, and that we that's really the only capacity that matters because we can express everything on the market. And there are so many people who have actually, you know, in much more systematic way, looked at the kind of deep philosophy of all of this. But what I do is just look at these persistent myths that you can see every day in the newspapers, it's it's kind of the sea that we swim in is these myths. And I suppose the reason why I focus on these myths is because it was the myths that kept me where I was for so many years. It's really hard within these myths, they kind of act in a way that once you kind of start to see a crack in another, the other one pops up. And the, what, the good example of that is whenever you try and argue against how companies operate, people will say, but we're all shareholders through our mm. companies. And we do, do we really want to be changing the incentives of corporations because we all rely on them and they provide so much public good. And there's just all these layers and layers and layers that I had to kind of fight through. If you think about the kind of fighting your way out of the paper bag, it's not just one paper bag. It's, you know, there's bags and bags and bags of it. And it's why whenever people ask me, I think people are really tempted to just skip to the end where I kind of lay out my positive vision for what legal changes we can make and, and you know, how we should restructure the economy. And I think what people would like to see is, you know, one law. What's the one law that we can change? You know, is it just that we need to enforce antitrust and competition law more effectively? Should we just break up Google and then that you know that's the solution? We won't have these kind of powerful monopolies anymore. And I, I always say that actually it's really the ideology that is the key problem. We need to kind of solve the ideology, really change our entire framing of how we understand how markets operate. Because without that, we'll only ever kind of make that one incremental change. We will always still be peddling in the other direction, whether we know it or not. And I think that it's why the myths are so important to service. We cannot have enough people you know, pointing to the, to the problems with those myths and, and really analyzing the, the neoliberal, uh, the harms that have been perpetrated under um, mm. neoliberal ideology. Yeah. And it's, I mean, the myths are part of the power, you know, it's the myths are holding the common sense in place that means people can't get out of the bag. And so what is nice about the book in my reading is, is that you, you document these myths, but that you're not pretending that we just need some slightly better ideas, right? Like we need, that would be a myth to suggest that these myths can be overcome by myths, that actually what these myths are signals to are signals uh, about whose power are, is being entrenched by these myths and therefore how we need to change power to be able to change the system by which a new common sense around the economy could be created. So talk to us about power. So, you know, as someone who, you know, by, by chance has been involved in more social movement-y stuff, you know, that is more my background, we, have all, we often talk about power as being quite a compelling way to understand the world, thinking about who has power, how, how power operates, how it's channeled, how it can be challenged, how it can be contested. You know, that's, it's a common concept in the world of social change. What I saw in your book, though, was a, a a more sophisticated take on economic power and how economic power works. Talk to us about the power problem 
when it comes, like so often in, in social movements, we talk about the power of the state or the lack of power of the state. We complain about corporate power of the state. Your book goes quite to the heart about actually how market power works and how economic power works. Talk to us about market power. So it's one of the things that when I was trying to diagnose the problem, I was surprised by you know, trying to read around the subject and understand how power is really understood within economics, you know, within competition law, it's actually central because what constitutes a problem for competitive markets is market power. But it's defined so narrowly as the power to increase the price of a product over the competitive level. So all that matters is that increment of power. And conveniently, if you are a monopolist, so you um, operate at a large scale, you can effectively claim that you don't have any power because you're going to keep prices low. You're, you have these enormous factories churning out you know, widgets or whatever. And so com- it, it, it conversely, like, or kind of counterintuitively, it's the monopolist, the most powerful that's able to say that on that measurement of power of keeping prices low, they don't have any. And so uh, when I started to look into this, and obviously that's just kind of a bizarre paradox to be sitting at the heart and be driving a whole regulatory regime. I thought, okay, well, so that's within competition law. It's a legal system. Yes, we use economics, but surely, you know, economists at large have not been treating power in such a paradoxical way. What I found is that actually economics has largely ignored power that clearly there are branches of economics, Marxist economics and feminist economics that really do look at power in a different way. But mainstream economics, which drives a lot of public policy and economic policy, takes this idea, this kind of myth of free markets and how uh, wonderfully they work and takes it as a genuine description of the world. And this idea that power cannot persist because there will always be somebody else that will come in. If you are powerful and are able to charge high prices, then somebody else will think, that's a good business to go into. I'll come in. And with no real sophisticated understanding of how that would actually play out, which is that the powerful incumbent would obviously put all sorts of barriers to and create kind of a a walled garden um, into which nobody else can enter. And critically, that they would be able to use their economic power, the extra profits that they earn by being able to corner a particular part of of the market, they're not just going to pay that out to their shareholders, although they will do plenty of that as well. They will leverage that power into political power. And that probably gets more into the world that that you're in, something that actually has been really understudied and underdeveloped as an idea within competition law. We think of ourselves as really, you know, only we only look at the market in this kind of very objective level. We don't look about look at what happens outside the market, which um, you know, is politics. And we don't look at what happens inside the company, which is kind of uh, outside the bounds of, of what we're looking at. So we're, it, it's somehow this kind of myth of, of neutral observation means that we can't actually see the system for what it is, this extremely complex system of, of power and, and how it's distributed. So I think that there are so many deficiencies that I identified. I, I can't say that I've, I've plugged all of those gaps in my in my book, but I, I certainly hope that I've pointed to, to those deficiencies because I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done in economic policy and economic thinking around how power is actually leveraged, exploited, and exercised, and against whom. And I think that's one of the really important things is that this, new, this position of the neutral observer 
means that often we want to kind of diagnose whole markets as this market is competitive or this market is not. And we don't want to call out, you know, individual companies or really look at centers of power within those systems. And I think that's a huge oversight. You know, we should be absolutely going to those particular entities that have power. And that's why a lot of my book focuses not on, you know, improving the activities of all companies, but rather looking at those systemically important companies, the most powerful companies within the system, understanding how they got to be powerful. Sometimes it's through, you know, genuinely being a really good company. And so therefore, um, everybody flocks to them. But it doesn't matter how you get powerful. I doubt that any company is is powerful just purely through being, um, you know, the best company. But say if you have and, and being nice, I, I thought being nice, yeah, you know, <laughs> being so nice. That's um, that's 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 what we know uh, these big companies to be. But I mean, I think that it it shouldn't matter. The fact is that I see the I see power centers as effectively acting as black holes. They impact the rest of the system no matter how they got powerful, you will inevitably find resources and energy being sucked towards those companies. And then they obviously have all sorts of ways to increase their gravitational pull to really, you know, suck um, resources towards Mm. them. And we must take account of that. Like there's no way that we can assume that we can, you know, put money into the system or create regulation without understanding that that force field that operates around those companies will distort everything else. So we need to understand those distortions and understand how we can counteract them. Mm. Yeah. And so for people who are seeking to either interpret the world and particularly to change it, they need to be able to understand, you know, that gravitational pull, the monopolistic tendencies that are there, but also, you know, the sort of the possibilities but limits in the existing system of tools like competition law, which at the moment just are blind to to these power questions as as they as they as they are at the moment. But what I like about the book though, even with the limited system that we have, you identify a a, a bunch of new or novel ways that people who want to hold create greater accountability in in the market ways they could act either using existing laws or you propose a whole bunch of um of systemic changes that would be new you know looking at co-determination in Germany as a way of holding ca- greater accountability of employers to employees for instance talk talk us through a couple of the sort of leading tools that you think that you know, workers, environmentalists, social justice advocates should be thinking about, could be thinking about if they wanted to do something about the imbalance of power that we see in the market. I think the starting point is to understand, well, the very starting point is to identify power, obviously, to see power for what it is and and particularly monopolistic power. And then the, the, the next point is to understand that actually there are a wide range of tools that could be considered anti-monopoly, or there are different ways that we could challenge monopolistic power. Um, so I, ha- I I don't use this framing in the book, but I've kind of developed it su- subsequently. So I think of it in as falling under three buckets. Um, so the three Ds, this is dispersing power, democratizing power, and dissolving power. And I can talk really briefly about each of those, but the overarching point is that actually there are people who are trying to push for, push against corporate power in all sorts of different 
context. So this could be in the labor and union movement context. It could be in consumer movement. It could be in international development. You know, people are coming across corporate power and, and monopolies, but not necessarily identifying the problem as monopoly. And I think that that's one important kind of lesson in all of this really is that if we start to tie together those threads and understand, you know, it serves big business extremely well that everybody's having to fight on all these different fronts. If we understand that there is this overarching problem of concentrated economic power, then we can start to identify some of these common tools. So this first bucket, which is dispersing power, this is really taking this idea of the monopoly and trying to break it up or trying to reduce the the monopolist's power. And so this could be done primarily through antitrust law, competition law, to block more mergers, to be more skeptical of the um, arguments that companies make when they're trying to justify their conduct. And whenever they say that this merger will be really good because we'll produce all these efficiencies, we should understand that the flip side of efficiency could be exploitation of, of some resource or, or other um, economic actor. That's how you get low input costs is by exploiting somebody else, or, or it can be. You know, It's how you can get um, such cheap resources is through, if they're natural resources, by not having to pay for, for the cost of their replacement. So we can understand, um, we have a lot more skepticism, and we can therefore use tools like competition law to be holding that power to account and dispersing it. The second category is democratization. This is looking at primarily how to counteract the power. So not how to reduce the power of the powerful, understanding that there will always be some centralized power, both on the state side and in and the corporate private sector. But how can you then create a balance of power. And this could be through unionization, not just of workers, by the way, but well, not just of the traditional employee, you could talk about gig economy workers, we could be talking about civil society, creating platforms that would a- enable civil society to counteract the power of corporations. That might be, for example, by giving civil society standing to petition to various regulators that they then can, in the public interest, take, whether it's a competition or other action. You know, And this, this goes across not just kind of competition law, but also tax law, employment law, all sorts of different ways to democratize power by allowing different stakeholders within the system. So uh, the, the system I obviously know best is competition law. It's a uh, the way the competition law is regulated or is enforced, the regulators will say if it's a merger, they will um, you know, take some kind of consultation on what it, what they should be doing in relation to this merger. But I would say 90, 99% of the people whose voices they will be hearing are either big business themselves or representatives of big business. So where are the other voices? Who? How are they meant to know what is in the public interest if they don't have those other people um, sitting at the table? In the UK, mergers that are complicated get reviewed by independent panels. But who's on these independent panels? They're um, appointed by the Secretary of State, and they tend to be people who guess what, have spent most of their career in corporate law firms, in venture capital, and who are probably deeply enamored of those myths <laughs> that we talked about at the beginning. <laughs> so you know, it's all these different ways to countervail the power of, of the monopolist. I put that under the category of, of democratization. And then the third category is dissolving power. This is really challenging the right of corporations to exist in perpetuity. We have this idea that companies 
and you know through the sanctity of private property, etc. Another myth. We have this idea that if you form a company, you're just allowed to exist forever. We divorce this from an idea that a corporation, which gets all sorts of privileges, whether it be the privilege of limited liability, um, reduced tax privileges. That should only be given if it is serving the public interest. And if you repeatedly breach the public interest, you should be, your rights or your privileges of incorporation should be revoked. And those laws already exist in the UK, at least, and across the states in the US. But we don't use them because we really have bought into this idea that companies do serve the public good. um, So their kind of position is unquestioned. So... I kind of identify, as you say, it's it's mostly using laws that either exist or just need to be kind of enforced a little bit more strongly, or it does involve creating some new structures um, that, that don't exist, particularly under the idea of democratization. And I think democratization is so anathema to our ideas of, of the free market because we understand that the free market must be completely unrestrained and any system to democratize should be against that. But actually it's it's working within this idea of free markets to democratize power because even basic economics tells us that once there are concentrations of power, there will be distortions. And no system starts from a blank slate. We understand, of course, or we should understand that every economic actor starts from a position of having certain advantages. And we are just merely trying to ensure that when some companies or some actors are able to exploit the system or or even just, you know, in a non-pejorative way, are able to take advantage of the system and, and grow to power, that power must be counteracted and that there is something beneficial to the public good in doing that. So there are all sorts of different ways that we can um, challenge power. And I'm really, this is just kind of scratching the surface. I think that people who have expertise in other fields would no doubt have plenty to say on that. I can see it scratching the surface. So I can sort of see this, your next career emerging. And I know that we're going to see a lot more out of your work in public life and I'm sure in, in writing to the future. But this is my final question, right? You have just gone through uh, across the last decade, less than a decade, such a massive transition from one life to the life of a change maker, you know, you, it's a weird label for you perhaps, but I see you see, see something quite extraordinary in you. What have you learned about yourself through that transition? What, what in, is there an insight that, that really sticks with you about you as a person, as a, as a, an, as a leader that you treasure? The thing that was sparked when my friend, you know, made that observation to me that that really began this whole journey was that one of the reasons why I had kind of stayed with working within the system that I was working within, I found it so difficult to break out of that was because I really had this idea that I needed to be able to control everything that was around me. And so I set myself these goals, like I'm going to go you know, to a good university, then I'm going to go and work at a good law firm. Then I'm going to, you know, I had this dream that I was going to go work at the World Bank. I went and did that. I kind of had these ideas that I could pre-identify what my path would be. And what I've understood now is that although that can work well, it creates some sense of security, it can give you motivation to move forward. It ties you to the myths (laughs) that you um, and the kind of way of seeing the world that you had 
you know, five years ago or whatever, when you were starting to make that plan. And that actually having a lot more flexibility about how you see the world creates more room for spontaneity. But it also, it can be quite, can be quite challenging for somebody like me. It can be difficult to have that uncertainty. But the more I embrace the uncertainty and the more that I allow for serendipity and for, you know, true happenstance to kind of rule the emergence of my career, the more I'm actually able to take advantage of and see other you know, structures or other systems that exist outside of my closed world. So I think that it's almost in order for me to become a change maker, which you say is not a, <laughs> not a, a label that I yet feel comfortable with, in order for me to even begin to do that, it involves letting go of a particular worldview and not just like that that particular worldview is incompatible with the change but any like concrete worldview is is can be difficult then to move into a, a a way of changing of changing that world and it's almost like by now by letting go i'm actually able to bring in new people new new ideas and yeah, just by kind of not being so fixed, I suppose, in the way I decide to move through the world. Yeah. Wow. I love the openness of knowing you don't know everything, you know what I mean? Like that that can come from that. I think, and you know what, just for what it's worth, I know that you associate this fixed view with the experience you've had in a corporate legal firm, but I actually think that there's resonance for some of the, some of some people who do change making too, that we can be too fixed and too rigid and too narrow and too sure. And actually a level of doubt for everyone is a much more healthy way to be. And you embody that so well. So thank you so much for being with us and look forward to following your journey some more, Michelle. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Amanda. Changemakers is hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all our episodes. Changemakers is produced by Ben Keating and our audio producer is Jules Walkerup. Our series sponsor is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. We are also supported by the Organising Cities Project funded by the Halloran Trust based at the University of Sydney. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast and check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all our stories. We have a weekly training program called the Changemakers Organising School, a great place for anyone to drop in or come in every week for training about all things community organising. All the details and registration are on our website. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.